This is Faith in Your Recovery. I'm Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Our guest today is Sharman Gabbard of Fayette County, Indiana. There was a time not so many years ago when Connersville, the county seat of Fayette County, was a hotbed for drugs, overdoses, and death. The stats there were staggering. The news coverage didn't paint the area with bright, hopeful colors. But today, thank God, that's changed. Fayette County now has multiple recovery opportunities. In a few moments, Sharman will share some of that. But before she does, let's get to know her by having her share what has brought her to this point in her life. Sharman, welcome. We're glad you're with us here today on Faith in Your Recovery. Thank you for having me, Randy. Oh, it's our pleasure, and I know the folks out there are going to enjoy listening to you. Listen, before we get into the nuts and bolts of all of this, I understand you spend a little of your extra time running. <laughs> I've heard of people who do that. Tell us why. Uh, so while I was um, while I was in prison, I had found that uh, one of my biggest outlets uh, became running, and that also gave me that spiritual connection that I had never known. So I just haven't stopped. Tell us, you know, how often, what kind of running do you do? These are not short runs, as I've read on Facebook and heard you say. So I, I have completed a full marathon, 26.2 miles, <laughs> um, multiple half marathons, 13.1, and uh, almost every day I run a 5K, which is 3.1 miles. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of people like that. I pray for you, all right. Uh, I'd rather be in the background watching though this body could use that if it could make it happen. So congrats on that. That's got to be very satisfying to to reach that finish line, satisfying physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, yes. There, there was just something absolutely amazing that happened uh, the closer that I got to that finish line. The first half marathon that I ran, uh, there was a photographer on the side, and, and all I could think about as I was running is just how good God had been to me and how uh, um, the life that I get to live today. And he had captured tears just flowing out of my eyes as I was getting close to that finish line. Wow. Wow. That had to be a special moment. Obviously, how long ago was that? Uh, the first one was about um, two years after I had left prison. So about 2017 was my first half marathon. Uh, and then two years ago was when I, I had completed a full marathon. So you're still feeling, pardon the expression, the high from that, yes? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or just the thought of completing 26.2 miles, um, the, the physical task, and then just the mental piece of it. Uh, every step of the way, I just, you know, I get to think about the things that God has done in my life and the people um, and the changes. You know, I heard you say just completing. For you to be able to complete anything, pardon me, at that point in your life had to had to be very meaningful because that hadn't been your life before that, had it? Not at all. I, the only thing I'd ever completed was a prison sentence. Let's go back prior to that, if we could. Let's go back to your your childhood days, your early years. Tell us about that and what your experiences were and whatever, you know, that however that worked in you. <clears throat> Growing up, our, my normal, uh, my first childhood memory began when I was around five years old and um, I had woke up to my dad uh, beating my mom in the kitchen. And uh, 
prior to that, I, I don't really recall anything, but what I learned was that my mom had a gambling addiction and my, my father was um, an untreated alcoholic. So that set the tone for what was to come for many years in our home. And uh, then my next childhood memory was where I had three three cousins take me out in the woods and they sexually uh, molested me. So uh, early, quickly in life, I think that I felt as if my um, my purpose was <laughs> to be used or abused. And uh, I learned three things very early on. Don't talk, don't tell, and don't feel. Um, we had many secrets in our family. I wasn't able to talk to my parents about things because when they would fight, my mom would cry. She would tell his kids to hush, and my dad would leave. Uh, with my mom's addiction came many behaviors that I learned, such as lying for my mom to cover up what was going on there. At nine years old, my mom took my sister and I to the store to shoplift. And um, she would send us into the store. She would go in with us, but she would have us shoplift certain things. And I think to now looking back, it was to cover up for all the money that she was spending. So having those material possessions would show items to my dad for money that she was gambling away. And um, I was um, abused sexually by men and women all throughout my life and into my teenage years. My first drink of alcohol came at nine years old, too. And uh, I recall that feeling being like warm sunshine hitting your face on a hot, sunny day. And I think for the first time in my life, I thought that was a feeling of security. That warmth inside of my body was like a love that I had never known. And we didn't go to church. We were um, we lived across the creek on an 11-acre little compound. Uh, we were very poor. My father was a factory worker, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. There were three other children in the house. My dad would work daylight to dark while my mom had all these issues and untreated mental health issues, but I didn't know that at the time. We lived in a four-room shack with no running water. Uh, so there was lots of shame when I did start going to school. You know, I knew quickly we weren't like other other families, other children, but there were the there were times that my sister and I did get to go to church. That church bus would come around in the summer for that vacation Bible school. And um, so uh, there was an uh, opportunity for me where I got to learn the 23rd Psalm, and I got my first Bible. And so I guess I did achieve something uh, besides prison early on. Um, and uh, that Sunday school teacher was like a, probably someone that I looked to as, for safety. But there was this woman that would sing hymns every Sunday, and she had this look on her face, that look of just peace. And I think all my life I searched for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, years later, I've got to have a relationship with that woman in my life. But there come that time where um, the my behaviors outweighed that desire to go to church. And uh, so come, come middle school, um, things started changing for me quickly. So as you go back to those elementary years and all of the struggles, the challenges, the issues, those things. I'm going to guess somewhere in you, you knew this wasn't right, but your parents were telling you to do it, so you got to do what you got to do. Is that accurate? 
it became it was just our lifestyle. Uh, my mom would even take me to the public library as she would type over those electric bills, um, and she would use whiteout to cover up the past due amount and to type over that and and add it, so it appeared as if she had paid that bill. Um, lying to my dad meant that there would be no beatings uh, for my mom or myself or my brother. Um, so. Uh, so it's what I did. It was, uh, for me, it was the right thing to do because we just lived in fear all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, how, how did you deal with this at school? Did other kids, did you try to cover it up so you felt like you were like, or so others would think you were one of them? Or was it an obvious thing that Sharman's dealing with something? How did that play out? Um, when I didn't go to kindergarten, so my first uh, experience at school was first grade. My name was Charmin. I had a speech impediment, and I had cavities in all my teeth. Again, we didn't—we um, were very poor, so hygienes weren't uh, something that we had in the home. Now, looking back, I know that we had to smell— we had an outhouse, and we didn't have running water in our house. So so I think it was like, you know, kids are mean. They just don't know. And um, my siblings were all bused to a town uh, school, schools in town. They were labeled as children with learning disabilities. And for whatever reason, I wasn't. So having that speech impediment, at one point they gave me a tutor. And I think um, when I would get out of that classroom, I I had learned enough trust to tell this woman one time about my dad beating my mom. This incident that I recall was that he had beat her with a pistol. And I'm just like, just, you know. Uh, it's just what had happened. And and I think I wanted her to help us. Um, and it, those times when, when I would hear about God and this big loving God in the sky and all of these things, I recall like all of my childhood prayers went unanswered. There wasn't no big God coming to save us or to help my family. So I think I became resentful toward God. Absolutely. That's that's totally understandable. I want to go back to something you said. I don't remember exactly what the answer was, but you gave us three things that you learned early on. I remember one was don't speak. What were those three things? So our folks out and listening will get those straight. Don't talk, don't tell, and don't feel. Don't talk, don't tell don't feel. And that had to be your lifestyle for quite some time, it sounds like. It was. Yeah. Um, because we didn't matter. We were just children. We were to be seen and not heard. And then uh, when they would fight, the glass, like, I recall lamps being broken where my dad would literally, like, just throw the table, the kitchen table, or a hot cup of coffee on my mom. I remember times where he would, uh, he was, like, breaking her fingers, and she would beg and be like, she called him daddy, <laughs> and she would say, daddy, please stop. Yeah. And then uh, the names, like, that was just everyday life because while uh, you didn't know what bill collector was calling him at the shop— and for him, that was embarrassing. Like his family, we, he was ashamed of us. <laughs> and so then by the time I started junior high, um, I got to work pioneer I, because I wanted other clothes like 
other kids, but we were poor. So when I started working Pioneer— Explain to the folks what that is. I'm aware some of them may not be police. I, it's detasseling. It was detasseling corn. I'm not sure they still do this, um, but it was a very hard, hot job. And you had to be 13 to be able to detassel Pioneer. So you would uh, literally take the tops out of the corn— um, so for me, it was a means of money, and then I, I would get to have things. But uh, my mom, my mom would um, drop me off on 10th Street there in Connorsville. She would go in and buy me half gallons of Jim Beam, and I would give her money to go to bingo. Uh, and that was our relationship. Um, when I started junior high, my name was Charmin, and I had cavities in my front teeth. So I never smiled. I was always—I always had so much shame. Uh, and, of course, you know, like, that's a big deal. Your smile's a big deal. So—and um, there would be kids be like, why don't you get your teeth fixed? But they just didn't have the money to get my teeth fixed. And and um, so I started going by Marie when I entered junior high. I asked my mom to— enroll me by my middle name. I just didn't want to be that girl, <laughs> but I still was. Uh, but I quickly found children in that alley that would be out there smoking cigarettes, and I found a place of fitting in. Um, so my mom would let me smoke, my grandma would let me smoke, and then uh, I thought those were the cool kids. But for the first time in my life, I found like a place of fitting in. And um, what I know now is, you know, those were just broken kids just like me. We heard this, that very same part from one of our other guests. They moved from school to school, and they finally found that group they could fit in with, and it wasn't that kind of group that they knew later they should have been involved with. But still, that desire to, to connect, uh, that desire to feel a part of and a value and worth, which you probably got from that group because, you know, their expectations were not the same as some other people. Yeah. So was that pretty much your life through high school as well, Sharman? Um, in, in junior high, my mom ended up getting cancer, breast cancer, and uh, that was a turning point um, in, in my parents' relationship. Things started to change. One of the last beatings that I recall my mom getting, uh, we finally we finally got out of that shack. I think that's kind of important. And then when uh, we got into a trailer, and I recall that uh, I my dad had her down in the bedroom floor in there beating her. And, um, and I was begging my father to stop, and he pulled the cigar out of his mouth and he stuck it to her back. And I think that's like when I was just mentally done. Like I just couldn't see it no more. And, um, and I was begging my dad to stop. And my mom's got this huge scar still like on her back from that. But then later, not long after that, my mom got cancer. So uh, she was driving herself. She had to have a radical mastectomy. And she would drive herself to those cancer treatments to chemo because my dad had to work. And my dad's family just... <laughs> Just, you know, everything was my mom's fault. It was never that she was sick. It was just her fault because what she did to my dad. But it was like they justified those beatings because if she wouldn't take that money, then he wouldn't have to act that way. So... Then she started having all these prescription medications. And um, but before I was out of eighth grade, I had already overdosed. Uh, I missed 80-some days of school in my eighth grade year. And they, I was in the hospital next door to the junior high, and that principal came over there and told my mom. He's like, we're passing her on. 
in like instead of seeing and knowing like hey this is a completely dysfunctional situation and you guys need help they just didn't want to deal with me they labeled me a incorrigible child so of course going into high school um i was placed in like this special class for it was for kids it was called ace and it was uh for kids of trauma really but missed a lot of days of school and in trouble with the law I had overdosed again before I was out of uh, high school, and um, at that time, they went ahead and sent me to a treatment center, uh, and then um, I didn't have any credits, so I quit high school my senior year, what would have been my senior year, but I didn't have the credits to graduate anyhow. So I was uh, I was um, drinking whiskey almost on a daily basis. They had put me in a treatment center at 17 years old, an adult treatment center in Richmond, Indiana, and I had acute liver damage at that time from alcohol poisoning. So you've, uh, <laughs> you went through it all way too fast and way too young. Uh, I can't imagine what it must have been like internally, externally, physically, emotionally. You hadn't really gotten into the spiritual part. We're going to hear about that here in a little bit and the change that that brought about. So what was it then? You've mentioned a couple of times you do have some prison time in your history. What led to that and brought that about? Um, so... I le left high school in 1992. I had my first child in 1993. I uh, left Indiana. Um, you know, people talk about what was your, like, hopes and dreams as a child. My only dream was to get out of that house. They didn't talk about school or college or graduation. Uh, I have three siblings, and none of them graduated high school. They all quit their freshman year or before they was enrolled in their freshman year. But um I, I, shoplifting um, and DUIs, those were my early charges. I have over 13 felony convictions, and I've spent over 13 years of my life in prison. That doesn't count county jails uh, for, for shoplifting, thefts, DUIs, and habitual traffic violators. Was most of that to feed the addiction and uh, to cover that pain from earlier on? Everything I hated about my mom and dad, I repeated those same same things, those same behaviors. I lied, cheat, stole. I was angry. I would fight men, women. It didn't matter. What? Uh, we're not asking for details. Tell us a little bit about that prison experience. Did you, was were you able to use that to a benefit? Did it make life darker? Did it give you hope? What was it like for you? So. <laughs> So rotating in and out of the prison system up until I was 37 years old, Randy. Um, once you go into the system, like you're not a person, you're a number. My my DOC number is 981606. So that's how long ago was my first time in prison. And uh, um, <clears throat> I am a low-level nonviolent offender. However, I've been to every facility in Indiana for women. And there's there's not reform in prison. So it's really a temporary place of holding. And our system is so overcrowded and so overwhelmed that they don't have time to, like, truly diagnose a person. Oh, like, you've got PTSD and untreated mental illness and a substance use disorder and all of those things. It's just not like that. Like, people think, oh, they're going to prison, they're going to get punished, and then they'll get help. It's not like that. I was the same person that would go in that would come out. 
That's it. Nothing changed except all of those promises that I would promise my children, my family. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm different. The only thing that was different is I was taken away and then I was released back with all of those same issues. And now the, the legal system that I had to deal with, too, probation, transportation, family being, you know, having to take on all of those issues and trying to get me to and from or whatever. Let's before we get to the to the change of today and the Sherman that we're going to hear from and not just all that pain we have heard, which we so appreciate you sharing that. There's a way too many out there who have been through parallels, you know, situations and they need to know that somebody has been there done that and been able to rise above it as you, as you have, obviously. What, if you can think back to that last moment of incarceration, what is one positive thing you could say to those who were at that point of struggling? My last um, incarceration, I, I think this is real important. I had, I had, I've uh, been incarcerated 2013, and uh, so I was released at um, in January of 2013. When I was released from prison, two weeks after I was released, I started shooting dope with my son, my 19-year-old son. So I am an IV drug user in recovery, and I was shooting drugs with my son. That's how sick, and that's where my journey took me. When I was arrested, I had a plan to complete suicide because I didn't want to live anymore. The guilt and the shame and the person that I was and the mom that I couldn't be was just too much. The pain inside of my heart was so deep and dark. I hated myself, and I just didn't want to live because I couldn't change, and I didn't, I didn't know how people would say, let it go. How do you let something go that you don't know how to let go. So I was sentenced back to prison uh, again for four years due to was the sentence. Um, February 28th of 2014, uh, sentenced back to prison. And a few things happened uh, quickly for me. One was that I was very sick for about two, two weeks. And then Right before I was leaving Union County Jail, the night before to go to prison, uh, my youngest son's father brought my my uh, son at that time was seven. And when uh, they left that night, the jailer brought me this little tiny note. And when I opened it up, it said, you are so a good mom and I forgive you. And uh, when it when my child told me that he could forgive me for the person that I was and knowing like I'm gone, I'm not gonna be there for a long time, that I had to learn how to forgive other people that had hurt me. And uh, so like, I just knew that I wanted a relationship with God because I wanted what I saw on that lady's face. And I knew for me at that time that many people had been successful through the program of AA, the 12 steps. And I was just willing to do whatever it took to get that. You keep going back more than once to that lady with the look on her face. Uh, you don't have to share the name, but do you recall the name? Yeah, absolutely. Have you had further contact with her? Multiple times, yes. That's awesome. I'm sure you've told her she was a part of your survival. Yes. She was your... Your P-I-E-C-E of P-E-A-C-E. She was your piece of peace in that time that helped you get through the darkness. 
Yes. In in that where most of us want to be to make a difference, and you have. So now let's let's move to that part of your life, more of the victory journey. Though, you know, all of that was involved with you being where you are. It was what it was. But tell us who you are. I uh, so um, in 2015. Uh, January of 2015, I had a spiritual experience in prison. Um, Caleb had this 30-day challenge, and I didn't even know who Caleb was. Uh, but there was—I I just wanted different. So anything that I could do while I was incarcerated, I started attending church, Bible studies, reading motivational material. I wanted to be different, and I wanted to be a mom. Selfishly, I didn't want my parents to raise that younger boy of mine. And um, so that, that, too, was part of it. My oldest son— ended up going to prison himself, and I just wanted to be different. Uh, I One day, we got to go to the gym for an hour a day, and I uh, had stepped on the treadmill, and I was getting ready to change that station, and for whatever reason, I didn't. But I started running, and the song Amazing Grace by Chris Tomlin came on, and uh, tears just started flowing out of my eyes, and there was like the the craziest experience ever, but my whole body was filled with warmth, and and as I was running and crying, I I knew, like I heard, you've been set free. I knew that day in January of 2015 that God took it from me. I knew without a doubt. I finally, like after that song was done and I got off the treadmill and I, I went back to the dorm and journaled about it. But I knew that day that God had taken my, uh, my thirst for that high away from me. And I ended up leaving prison April 2015 with a GED that I had got as a patient in a state hospital on one of my tours is what I say. Um, and uh, my um, never was my thought that I wasn't going to go back to that community. It was always that's where I'm going back to because that's where the wreckage of my life was and my son and his friends. Because I knew if mom could change anyone could change and that's where I had to had to show that change so um I uh ended up starting you know school and just getting involved with whatever I could and sometimes that meant running five miles from the country to town and uh I um worked that summer got enrolled in college and saved enough money. I paid $200 for this old mobile home, and my dad moved it with a tractor. Uh, and um, <laughs> so I didn't care. I didn't care what the outside looked like. I just wanted a safe space for my son and I. And um, so we had that trailer that was ours uh, for the first time. No man in my life, no nothing. Just, uh, just our space and an opportunity for me to find who I was. Um, started going to celebrate recovery and met some amazing people there. <clears throat> Volunteering at, at any place that I could volunteer, I just wanted to serve because that was part of my program and my pathway and so um and then through the journey I ended up starting uh to go to cross point and because I didn't have a driver's license my mom took me that first Sunday and when I walked into the door of this biker church and I'm not a biker at all but uh um I knew that's exactly where I was supposed to be in that season of my life and and uh after that service <clears throat> that day, I asked my father, I said, I think you would like to go to this church. 
church. I said, um, I think you would like it, Dad. And uh, and then a few days later, I was like, Dad, I really wish you would go to church with me. He said, I said I would go. And my dad had never went to church a day in my life. Um, and that Sunday, my father was up and ready to go to church. So because of that terrible situation and not having a driver's license, God made good with that. And then uh, some months later, my I was um, I was in church praying and uh, during altar call, and somebody tapped my shoulder and they said, "Come on, uh, Dad raised his hand for salvation," and I said, "Who's Dad?" And uh, he said, "Your Dad." And um, so I got to go forward and pray with my with my dad. And um, then a couple weeks later, my mom asked for salvation, and, and then I talked to him about baptism. And my dad at first was like, "I don't think we need to do that, Sherman." And then uh, not long after that, he said, we're going to get baptized. Then my mom had uh, three heart attacks in one day, and she had like a 50% chance to live. But I had such peace knowing, you know, that if that if if, if she was to go, that my mom was going to finally be at peace. Um, so moving forward from that, my mom and dad renewed their vows at 50 years in the church, uh, and they're not who they used to be. My parents are amazing people today. Um, but I ended up getting an associate's degree uh, and a recovery coach certification, found you, um, found Brianna's Hope through Facebook, and, and I knew I wanted to start uh, a different kind of recovery group than what was offered in Connorsville. Found Brianna's Hope, and I asked my pastor, I was like, let's can we, you know, go check this out? And my pastor's a big biker, <laughs> wears leather, and uh, we and made he, made the trip. He has a beard with far more hair in it than I have on the top of my head. He's a neat guy. Uh, I'd love uh, hearing his story. Now, more than once, as I help me if I'm wrong on this, but I'm reflecting back what you said that first drink of alcohol brought a warmth to you like the sunshine on your face. Yes? Isn't that pretty much what you said? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just a few moments ago, you said when you were there on that treadmill, there was a moment of warmth that forever changed you as well. It's the most high. That was the most high, the most high experience that I'd ever had in my life. That my next question was going to be, what's the warmest moment of your life? And that's, I'm going to guess that was it. There was no um, shot of heroin, no Oxycontin that compared to, without a doubt, like I just knew, I knew he took it from me that day. And, and I've never wavered from that. Um, February 28th of this next year, I will have eight years, God willing, and, you know, I stay the course eight years. I couldn't go eight hours. <laughs> Congratulations. And then that moment at church where you were tapped on the shoulder and uh, they said, no, it's your dad who's who's ready to step forward here for prayer and to receive Christ. Was that difficult for you because of what you had been through, or is, had that been so much what you were praying for, you could just make the adjustment? I had, um, through my program of recovery, uh, James chapter 5, verse 15 says, to confess your transgressions one to another and pray so that you may be healed. I had completely come to a point of forgiving my parents and uh, like asking them to forgive me. 
Um, because I wanted to, selfishly, I wanted to be free from that resentment. I didn't even realize I was 30 some years old walking around angry at my mom and dad for my childhood. And uh, that uh, moment was just another promise of God that the Bible says out of a time of suffering, something new will be born from it. And, uh, um, now I feel as if my childhood prayers have been answered. Incredible stuff, incredible story, and you're in an incredible place in your life. Uh, praise God for that, and thank you for the work that it took. You know, God will give the direction. He'll give you the shovel for the hole, but he won't dig it. We've got to dig it. And you dug yourself out of that hole, <laughs> and wow, what you've shared here, I know it's already touched lives. I know you're working with a recovery cafe, right? Tell the folks a little about that. So I just, um, sometimes like for me, I'm, I'm a little bit stubborn in what I will take part of or what I won't. First, I want to protect the people that I get to work with. So that's real important to me. So I've said a lot of no's along the journey uh, and um, had a lot of offers to do this or do that. And if it doesn't feel right, then I'm not going to do it. Not saying Sherman's always right because I'm not. Sure. Um, but this opportunity came about for me to, uh, well, I had a job as um, the, uh, I was the intake coordinator at North Star. It was a, it was a 42 bed facility um, in Connersville. It was a detox facility. And come almost a year after it had opened, the hospital filed bankruptcy. And we were in April and we knew the the um, hospital was closing in May. And I wasn't stressed. Like, I knew Reed wasn't going to hire me because I have a horrible criminal history. And uh, so I, I hadn't applied. And people started asking me, like, aren't you worried? And I was like, no. I said, I'll go to work at McDonald's if I have to. I knew God was going to take care of me. I wasn't, as long as I could pay my bills, that's all that mattered. And uh, I was willing to work, you know, full time at McDonald's. And an opportunity came about. Um, it was, uh, they asked me to do an in stigma campaign. And through that, we got to bring two uh, very well known known um, Christian groups to Connersville through that and just talking about language that we use and ways that we identify. Uh, and like, I no longer identify as a junkie. I, I'm not a junkie. I'm a child of God. I'm a person and I have worth. And sometimes those words take away from our value. And so I no longer have to use those words or think of myself as a person with less worth. That campaign was amazing, and then another opportunity came, and I went to Washington, D.C., had never been there before in my life, and um, this professor from Indiana University had asked me, she said, Sherman, if you could do anything, what would it be? And I said to open up a, a connection center to minimize the barriers for people leaving incarceration, people that struggle with substance use and mental illness. Uh, oftentimes, we don't think that if a person don't have an address, they can't get a driver's license sent. If you don't have an address, you're not getting an ID. Or if you don't have a birth certificate, you can't get a job or just all those little pieces. A place where people can come without judgment. Um, we don't claim to be faith-based. I feel like I don't have to go around saying, you know, that I am a Christian. And if you don't believe the way I do, if I just love people like Jesus did, then that should be enough. And if not, then I'm not doing the right thing. We're a judgment-free, stigma-free zone. Um, and we're open uh, three days a week right now. I have three peers that are people with lived experience 
that work there and they make good money god's god's <laughs> been amazing um and uh oh this it's a beautiful space. We have all pathways of recovery support group. We have Brianna's Hope on Saturday mornings there. Uh, and then on Friday night, we're there from four to 10. We have food and hygiene items. All of our services are free, but we're just a judgment-free, stigma-free space to love people. What an incredible option for folks and place for them to be able to go to have a multitude of needs met Absolutely. and to feel that value and worth that you've spoken so much about here today, the combination. Charmin, is there anything that I haven't touched on that you'd like to share or say? One thing, um, so with my education, again, education wasn't valued in my our family and uh, I'm the first person in either side of my family to go to prison or uh, to have a degree. I have a bachelor's degree and I just started back to school. Um, I'll have my master's in less than a year and a half. Um, and uh, so I had three lifetime suspensions on my driver's license. I hadn't, I hadn't drove legally for over 20 years and I hadn't drove at all for eight years, almost eight years. And um, some amazing people that I had met through through the Celebrate Recovery had been in town recently and they said, uh, you know, we we prayed about it and we want to see if we can help you get your license. And I said, I've already hired two attorneys and, and they said no. And um, they said, well, we've contacted an attorney. And so I met this attorney and a wonderful person and he had he had tears in his eyes, and he said, um, "He said, Charmin, it's not if I can get your license, it's what kind of license I can get you. Well, last week, I just officially got my actual driver's license in the mail, but uh, I do, I've gotten my driver's license back after three lifetime suspensions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting spirit chills just hearing that. I know as you came here this morning, uh, you know, you had a little misdirection, a hiccup, you missed us by a block or two. And as you got out of the car, we were talking about how driving's changed in that period of time. Do you recall some of what you were saying to me? Absolutely. Like, everywhere you go, people are just going so fast. And as I was driving here this morning, like, I'm looking at the sunshine in my rearview mirror and the trees. And I guess I'm just engulfed with God's handiwork because I... I missed it. I missed many things in life. Um, I was numb uh, for almost three decades of my life. And, and now I'm 47 years old and uh, there's a song, Born Again. Like every day is like living life. And for the very first time, uh, I have a wonderful relationship with my kids. I'm, I'm a homeowner. I became a homeowner before I got my license. Uh, but my 15-year-old son, I'd like to think that he's perfectly normal. He's a, a great student. He um, plays four sports. And then my oldest son, uh, he has had, he has his own struggle. Um, and um, so what I get to be is uh, I get to be a sober parent. And I was presenting at IU East a few weeks ago, and, and I never not share my faith because that's exactly what saved me like I know what I know why I'm here and today I know I have purpose and when I was sharing my struggle at that uh, school it was with the class of nursing students this young man followed me out of that class and he said um you said you get to help every one else or other people's children, but you can't help your own. And he said, I feel like God wanted me to tell you that he has prepared you and uh, 
placed you in this moment for the present. And uh, like tears just started flowing out of my eyes. This young man, 20 some years old, just, you know, prophesied to me and just told me like, it's going to be okay. And, and that's the life I get to live today. God gives me so many gifts. The life I get to live. It, it's been your choice and it's been his blessing and you've blessed so many others with it. You used a work there you were talking about looking in your rear, your, uh, rear view mirror, looking ahead to the skies and the trees, all of the handiwork. You've proven today that you're one of God's pieces of that. Uh, it says that one of the virgins of Scripture were a masterpiece, and indeed you are, a beautiful painting of, of hope and godly, you know, change and success and trust. Uh, thank you. Thank you for, for being you today and for sharing your life with us and our listeners. God bless. Thank you, Randy. Thank you for having me. Don't give up on yourself and don't give in to the urge. Your answer, your healing, your recovery may be in our next episode. Have faith in your recovery by having faith in yourself, your journey, and above all, God. Believe and stay in the fight.